technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Hello, and welcome to a special crossover episode of Digital Dialogue and the Status Go podcast. This is going to be a, a, a great conversation. It probably won't be as cool as when uh, Law & Order uh, does a crossover episode or NCIS does it, but we're going to do a, a LinkedIn Live today, and then this will air on the Status Go podcast uh, next Monday. I'm Jeff Tun. I'm a fellow with the Institute for Digital Transformation, and I'm the host of the Status Go podcast. Our podcast is published by InterVision Systems, who is also sponsoring this digital dialogue today. Over the last five months, I've had the pleasure of hosting a recurring series on Status Go. Uh, in May, we launched Mythbusters Cloud Innovation and Security, a series of interviews aimed at busting some of the common myths in technology today. Over these five myths, oh, sorry, over these five months, we have heard from IT leaders and InterVision experts as they dove deep into the myth that cloud is only for large companies, that the cloud is too expensive, the cloud is not secure, migration is too complicated and too costly, and the cloud is not reliable. As we look back on those conversations, a common thread emerged we found that many times our peers and sometimes our own teams were hanging on to preconceived notions and outdated information and just plain urban legends, and it had them stuck. Today on this digital dialogue, I am joined by Braden Pitts, the VP of IT for MJ Insurance, Rob Spitzer, the Director of Microsoft Cloud Services for InterVision, and our special guest, Lisa Cavanaugh the Global Markets Chief of Staff for the Center for Creative Leadership. Together, we're going to talk about what it takes to be a myth buster in your organization. As our guests come on camera, I want to remind those of you viewing this live that we would love for this to be interactive. Please share your thoughts and questions in the LinkedIn chat. If you are listening to this as a recording on the Status Go podcast, Visit us at the Status Go podcast group on LinkedIn and join in the conversation. With that, Braden, Rob, and Lisa, welcome to Digital Dialogue and Status Go. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Hey, it is fabulous to have you all on the program. What I want to start with is have you each briefly introduce yourself to the audience. I kind of used your title and, and the company you're with, but just give us a little brief update on uh, who you are, where you're from, and what you're up to these days. So uh, Lisa, why don't we start with you? Great. Hi, everyone. I'm Lisa Cavanaugh. I started my career in management consulting, believe it or not, doing global technology implementations. Then I moved to the oil and gas industry where I held leadership roles in strategy, business development, health, safety, and environment, and learning and development. I'm now dual hatting at the Center for Creative Leadership as the Global Markets Chief of Staff, which Jeff mentioned, but also as the Interim VP of Sales for the Americas. Previously, I was a Managing Director for our flagship campus in Greensboro, North Carolina, and later at our Colorado Springs campus. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you, Lisa. Uh, really appreciate you joining in this conversation today. Hey, Rob, how about you go next? Sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm Rob Spitzer. I'm the director of Microsoft Cloud uh, Services at InterVision. I've been here for 18 years, really focused on Microsoft technologies during that time. Uh, prior to InterVision, I worked for Newport News Shipbuilding, also in IT, also focused on uh, Microsoft services. So I've gotten to watch Microsoft go from on-premise to the cloud from both a customer and a consultant uh, you know, side of the fence. Awesome. Thanks, Rob, and, and uh, appreciate you joining in today as well. Hey, Braden, I saw your note. Man, you've been promoted. Congrats. Yeah, uh, yeah thank you. I appreciate that. Enterprise Technology at MJ. So congratulations on that. You want to share a little bit about your story? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. So uh, Braden Pitts, uh, Senior Vice President of Enterprise Technology at MJ. 
Uh, I've been in the industry for a little over a decade now, um, primarily in small business uh, role. And, uh, you know, I've, I started as a uh, engineer on the front lines, uh, did my time in the help desk answering uh, printer tickets and whatnot, and then kind of worked my way up. So uh, more recently, last five years or so, I've been in more of a people leader role. And, uh, and like you mentioned, I, I was just promoted to SVP at, at MJ. That, that's exciting. And, and thanks for not only being on the Mythbuster series, Braden, uh, but thanks for, for jumping in uh, on this conversation as well. Rob, I want to start with you. During the, the series, the Mythbuster series, you were on, I think, one of the first episodes that we did, mm -hmm. busting the myth that the cloud is only for large companies. Uh, in your experience, what have you found the best way to help someone see the light, so to speak? Um, the best approach is to always start small, right? I see a lot of customers, whether we're talking large or small organizations, that try to get their hands around the entire cloud journey in one shot. And one of the beauties of the cloud is you, you don't have to do that. Um, you can find a particular pain point, do a small proof of concept or a small, you know, a small project around whatever that particular pain point is and go from there. So, um, for instance, during COVID, um, a lot of folks were trying to figure out how do we get access, you know, historically file shares and phone systems weren't a problem. They just lived in the office. Um, how do we get access to those things though once everybody went home? Those became all of a sudden pain points and, and things we could kind of grasp onto and become those, you know, those first projects. It really is a journey. It's it's not one of those things you're going to do in just one move. So just find that pain point, find that small way in, uh, work work through there. I think we mentioned on the podcast, cybersecurity is another, a, another big uh, place we see folks trying to come in, um, you know, trying to meet cyber insurance requirements, things like that. I, I think that's great advice when you think about any change is you got to start. You got to start somewhere. You got to yeah. take those initial steps, uh, those baby steps. So start small. Uh, Brayden, I want to pull you into the conversation here. When when you and I talked uh, several months ago now on the on the podcast, I love how you you flipped the myth on its head. We were talking about uh, the cloud is too expensive and uh, what you did was focus more on the value side, the benefits and access to enterprise grade technology and at a fraction of the, of the cost, uh, while at the same time you focused on managing costs. So thinking back on your career, where did you learn that approach of, of taking the value first and still managing the things that need to be managed in the background? Yeah, so I'll give a little bit of credit to um, the ITIL methodology and specifically the revamp in ITIL v4 that focuses more on value chain for the business. So, um, you know, I, a lot of organizations look at their technology stack or their technology department as, uh, as an expense center. And, um, it's not traditionally not valued as a value driver for the organization. So, the first is positioning, right? So what is it that we can do from a technology perspective that drives the value chain for the business? And I think the immediate jump is typically people look directly at the customer value chain and they say, okay, well, what can IT do to increase revenue from a customer or, or whatever? And that's great. Um, that, that should probably be your primary focus, but there are internal value chains too uh, that you can use to decrease overhead or decrease expense for internal uh, teams, finance, accounting, HR, whatever, you, you know, as we continue to scale out organizations, there's a level of overhead that comes with the scale of those organizations. So if you can use IT as a force multiplier, um, it helps, you know, reduce those cost centers uh, for, for your shared services. So as far as where I learned, probably, um, I, I think I had the the benefit of coming up in my technology career in small business where um, you're kind of fighting for every dollar every day. And so you're trying to get creative and figure out, you know, how can I do the same stuff the big guys are doing, but do it on a, on a budget and do it um, quickly? How do, as a small business, how do I have that same agility that a large enterprise has because they have deep pockets and unlimited people resources? So 
that's where I started exploring, you know, cloud technology and what you were saying a minute ago about the economy of scale is like, I can go to the cloud and be operational within a day's time frame with some idea or some strategy that um, would have taken weeks or months or, or, or longer if I were to try and build it on premises and acquire the same technology and the same leverage. So, you know, to call back to what Rob was just saying a minute ago, you got to start with that small use case and think, okay, I have this specific pain point right now. I could go acquire the technology and put it in place and it might take me six months to do that. But um, I could also go to AWS or Azure and spin up that specific use case and, and trial run it and say, hey, does this fit? And then where can I bring the rest of it in? Yeah. And, and I love that how it ties back to what Rob was saying about uh, you know, start small, take those incremental, those, those first steps, but also the small company, right? And how does a small company, sometimes you need to use that to your advantage uh, because you are, you can be a little more agile than the, than, than the big organizations out there. Now, Lisa, before I pull you into the conversation, I have to tell a little bit of a story uh, about how you and I met and it, and it, it actually ties back to another thing that Rob mentioned in the days of the pandemic when people were scrambling uh, to do things. Um, I know this will be a, a huge surprise to people that are that are listening, but I'm a fan of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, in, in fact, I was hired several years ago uh, to develop a leadership development program based on the story of Lewis and Clark, along with three other folks. Uh, and we were to launch in May of 2020. <clears throat> Not a great time to launch an in-person leadership development program. Uh, so we had to pivot. But at the same time that we're pivoting and at the same time all this is going on, Lisa joined the company uh, during the pandemic when she couldn't even go into the office. And together we helped build this program uh, about leadership development. And uh, Lisa was instrumental in helping us uh, launched that uh, for her previous employer, FCCS Consulting, who puts who puts that on. But when you when you uncover and unpack some of the leadership lessons that we go into in, into in that, we we call it a new way forward, which is really what we're talking about here, right, Lisa? We're we're talking about busting a myth, uh, trying to trying to forge a new way forward in our in our leadership and in our companies. With your background and and now your work with the with CCL, what what's the science behind that? What what's uh, what makes it so tough to do this? Yeah. So before I before I start talking about the multiple factors that are at play, I do have to warn you all that Jeff's affection for the Lewis and Clark expedition is contagious. So you might catch it. Just be aware. Uh, and it is a really powerful backdrop because of, of all of the uncertainty and the unknowns that they were facing as, as they did their expedition. But when we think about that resistance to change, there are really quite a few factors at play. And I realized as I was preparing for this that we could take days on this. So I will try to keep my comments brief. Um, but what underlies a lot of it is fear and anxiety right? Whether it's fear of the discomfort, fear of failure, fear of loss of control, or even a threat to your own identity if things are changing so much that you have to let go of some parts of yourself. Um, when I think about it, I really think about it in three buckets. One is around personality factors. So I, I won't bore you with all the details behind the big five personality model and all of that, but I'm going to call out three different factors that that model talks about one is openness. And so folks who have openness, they like to try new things. They get excited by being outside of the box and with fewer rules in place. So that actually encourages, encourages uh, comfort with change. But there's an other side of the spectrum where you're maybe a little bit more cautious or you want more consistency, which might make you a little bit more resistant to change. Another is conscientiousness. So conscientiousness when it shows up in people's personalities, it's a desire to be really careful and diligent and disciplined. If you're on the other end of the spectrum, you might be extravagant and maybe a little bit careless. And so change seems like a fun party to go play at. But if you're high on conscientiousness, it can make you really uncomfortable to be put in that situation where things are changing. Last on personality is neuroticism. And neuroticism, uh, 
folks who, who are high on neuroticism tend to have more of the negative emotions showing up. So pessimism, anxiety, um, fear can show up, insecurity. And those can also make you more nervous about change than maybe if you were on the opposite end of that spectrum where you're very resilient and confident and you can tackle anything, right? So that's the personality component that plays a big role. Next, I would say mindsets have a huge role to play. So if you're coming at the world with a growth mindset where you believe that your intelligence, your capabilities can be easily expanded versus them being fixed traits that aren't unchangeable, it's easier to embrace change. Same with an innovative mindset or curious mindset where you're really open to the new and the exciting and, and you tend to flourish in those um, in those environments. So you tend to be a little bit change friendlier. There are some mindsets, however, that can be pretty challenging when you're looking at change. One is if you have a victim mindset. So this is all happening to me and I don't have any empowerment for myself in it. I don't own it. I can't control it. Um, if you have a scarcity mindset. So if we do this, you're taking something away from me because there's a fixed amount of resources available. Um, or if you have a pessimistic or negative mindset where everything's bad and scary and no, thank you very much. Um, so those are the mindsets that might come into play. And then last but not least are biases. And I'm so glad I have biases on my list because Jeff and Braden, as you were talking about framing the, the, the cloud, kind of flipping it on its head, instead of, instead of talking about the, the cost or the investment in it, let's talk about what the benefits are. That's a framing bias. And how we frame things has a huge impact on how we view them in the future. So we tend to stick with that framing. So when you frame things as here's the benefit, there's a win in that, just in the way you framed it. Um, but so other biases that can play a big role, there's a loss aversion bias, which says, I would rather keep things exactly as they are, even if doing something different would mean I would get something better because I'm comfortable with the way they are and I don't wanna lose what I have. Losing what I have is bad. There's a, uh, a kind of um, adjacent bias that's called the status quo bias. And that's, I'm gonna keep state of affairs exactly as they are. I don't need anybody changing it. Even if that change would, would accrue me benefit over the long term, I still just wanna keep what I have because I know what I have and I'm comfortable with what I have. Um, the last one that I'll highlight is confirmation bias. I think, and by the way, all of us have some form of biases. They're shorthand for us. They actually help us in our lives, but we need to be mindful of them. Confirmation bias is one that uh, many people are familiar with. And basically what that says is once you've made up your mind, you will pay more attention to evidence that supports your point of view than challenges your point of view. So that's a risk when we have that confirmation bias. It looks like everybody agrees with us. All the data tells us that that we're right, when in fact there may be other data out there where we've just put on blinders related to that data. So that's the biases. And, and there are many more biases and mindsets and personality factors than what we have time to touch on here. But being mindful of how our own thinking is coming into play can be really helpful. And what I would say is that with intention, you can overcome any of these, right? Be a critical thinker, be thoughtful. Um, reframe the change instead of having it be a scary thing. Think of it as a developmental opportunity, that sort of thing. So I'll stop there because otherwise I could take up the entire time. No, I, 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 I love that, that Lisa, because so many, so, so much of what you talked about there uh, applies to some of the reasons why we're all, we, we were all drawn to information technology as a profession in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right. We're conscientious. We want to do things to support and keep things steady. And, and then, of course, when you know, when you mentioned the status quo bias, you're speaking my love language there, uh, because that's why the podcast is called the Status Go podcast. It's for people, the professionals that want to break out of the status quo, break through that bias. So that that was all awesome. Uh before I put you guys on the spot and have you talk about a time when maybe you had a difficulty uh, coming coming up with uh, a, a reason to change and driving change forward, I want to go back in my own career and talk about a, a time when uh, I had a real difficult time. I had a I had a bias, and so I started. I was uh, chief information officer for Goodwill Industries of central and southern Indiana here in Indianapolis. And so I, I come into that organization and man, I was I was Microsoft, 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 Microsoft on, on everything. 
And I found out that in our high schools, Goodwill here uh, uh, owns and operates several high schools. uh, They were using Google. Why would you use Google? Why would you teach these students Google when they go when they go uh, out in the workplace? They're going to be using Microsoft. Right. And uh, I was man, I had that bias uh, of all things Microsoft. And Lisa, like you were saying, you know, that confirmation bias, you'd you'd hear in the news about this problem with Google or that problem. And it's like, see, I told you, I told you. Um, And it really took, um, I I had a good friend of mine that was actually a a Google consultant. Uh, He had set up a a practice group, his own company, uh, pushing Google. So Brett Hayes, if you're listening, man, here's, here's our story. Uh, and he convinced me to go to a Google roadshow that they were putting on at the convention center here in Indianapolis. Uh, and one of the segments, uh, one of the guys that was up there on stage talking was talking about their cybersecurity program at Google. And he got he got pretty much into the weeds on the technic on some of the technical aspects of it. But what really struck me was um, when he talked about the amount of money, that Google spend would spend on cybersecurity. You know, my budget was about uh, 25 bucks. Uh, not really, it was a little bit more than that, but uh, they would spend billions on security with a B. And that really, that was the piece. And Google's now talking to me uh, over here because I said her name too often. Um, you know, that got me at least opening my eyes, right? It it showed me a different viewpoint. It's like, we really need to, to look at that. Now, I'd love for each of you to chime in about a time in your career when uh, you held a myth about something. Uh, and what was it that you were, that helped you get past it? What, what got you through that, got you to the other side of that myth? And I'm not going to call on anyone unless you don't answer and then I'll pick on you. So just one of the, one of the three of you chime in on this and, and share your story. Come clean. I, I can go ahead and start. Um, for me, it's not far away from what we've been talking about here. Um, so I started in IT in the nineties uh, around 2005, I think is when Microsoft got into office 365 at that time, you know, was working, was working as a consultant and, had made a pretty good career of migrating customers from versions of Exchange, right? And that that decade, some customers we we migrated up to three times, right? We it's a nice little nice little gig taking taking a customer from one version to the next. You get to know them real well. You get to know their environment really well. Microsoft came to us and said, "Hey, we've got this. There's this cloud thing coming. Um, you we you should jump on board." And we're looking at it and. This, we're going to do one more migration and then we're done. This doesn't feel like a good business to get into. Um, I don't, I don't like that. And I, you know, that like that I don't like thing turns into confirmation bias almost immediately, right? So what did I do? I started to find things that kind of proved why this was a bad idea. Forget all the good stuff, you know, oh, there was an outage that occurred or there was a breach that happened. You know, look, look, there's this, this, there's this problem. Um, we shouldn't use this thing. Um, what occurred over time is what happened to every organization. Um, there, you, you just can't, there was no avoiding this, this change that was occurring. And so, after you kind of get into the, you know, into the cloud world, you realize not only is it a better model, but hey, I, you know, you're not going to lose your job over this. And that's for me, that was a big fear. And and to be honest, that was a helpful fear for me to run into because I've seen a lot of customers have this same problem, right? A lot of the conversations we have where people are cloud averse it's coming from the place of fear. I, I don't want to move. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to lose my job. It's really comfortable the way it is. I have yet to meet somebody who has lost their job in a cloud move. <laughs> it may change your job, but in most cases, it's been for the better. It gets most of us out of the things we didn't like to do anyway, right? The day-to-day patching and backups and stuff like that. And we kind of get into the more business-focused, you know, aspects of the job. 
So, um, you know, it, that's that was kind of my my own own kind of myth busting I had to do in my own journey into the cloud. Yeah. So uh, kind of in that same light, I was thinking back uh, my experience that probably launched me into a passion for cybersecurity that I didn't realize until just now was uh, in, in the mid 2010s, I was working for a software company here in Indianapolis and uh, I was a support engineer and the team that I worked on supported some of our largest customers. So really large, complex environments. Um, we were in the voice space, so everything we did was extremely time sensitive. Uh, we supported everything from insurance companies to 911 call centers. Um, so, you know, voice quality was extremely important to us. And uh, somebody had come along one day and suggested uh, this product uh, called Splunk, which, you know, they just got acquired by Cisco. But uh, they they suggested we're, we're going to start pulling the logs from these, these servers with Splunk. And uh, our whole team was kind of just, you know, terrified of the performance implications because you're going to install this agent and you're going to start streaming all these logs off the machines and you know we looked at it as not a threat to our jobs but as a threat to like our sanity and our day-to-day -day because it's going to create all these problems we're going to get all these tickets and the customers are going to be upset and all this right and and so i remember the person that was kind of um leading the project or pushing the idea was extremely passionate about what he was talking about he was really convicted that this was a way forward for us. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, ultimately, I believe everyone's coming to work every day um, trying to do the right thing that helps us and helps them and helps the customer. And so I don't think he's doing something that's going to, you know, negatively impact me, at least not purposefully. Right. So I sat down and I, you know, built out a test environment and, and stood this stuff up and I said, okay, let me just look at this and see how it works and, and gain an understanding of what it is that's going on before I just make a decision that this is bad and I'm not going to do it. Well, ultimately, uh, we decided to move forward with that project. And um, at the time, I probably had no idea, but it ended up leading to um, a couple different positions within that same company where... Um, at one point, we had created a role that was called the Continual Service Improvement Architect. And that's based around the ITIL philosophy of continual service improvement. And it was based around the idea of proactively catching um, some of these issues that could occur and servicing the customer before they became an outage-related incident for the customer. And uh, and that that dove me further. I ended up in a, in a, in a role at a uh, Splunk uh, service provider and uh, got more heavily involved in cybersecurity and kept digging and kept learning, right? So, you know, to me, that's not something I ever put together until I was just standing here talking to you guys. But uh, it, it, that's probably the best example I can give uh, of overcoming something like that. Excellent. Hey, thanks for, for sharing that, Braden. I appreciate that. All right, Lisa. So I'm that's actually going to riff a little bit off of Braden's kind of where he landed. Mine will not be a technology example. I've been away from that world for a little bit too long. Um, but I grew up in a family where my father spent probably 20 or 30 years in with the same company in a very similar job from the day that he started. He moved up, but 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 he was essentially in that same stream of work. And so when I started my career, if you'll recall from my bio, I've had a few different jobs in a few different industries with a few different functions and titles. So one of the myths that I really had to overcome was that the, the path to, was to success is specialization where, or, or consistency. You stay with one company for the entirety of your career. You stay in one field for the entirety of your career. My intent uh, is not to, to dismiss that because I think there's power in being able to do that. But where I found my success is almost on the polar opposite of that, where you know, my first master's degree was in library and information science. My second master's degree is in industrial and organizational psychology. I had more majors than I can account when I was in college. I've worked for more companies than I can count. Um, and learning that lesson that not being a specialist is actually okay, because when wicked problems come along that don't have clear solutions, I have a different tool set that I can draw from across all of those different functions and experiences that is different than the tool set that a specialist has. Mm -hmm. Now there's some problems that a specialist is absolutely gonna be the right person to solve it, but there are other kind of more complex problems that I'm 
better suited to solve because of the approach that I've taken in my career. Despite the fact that I've occasionally had those doubts to say, maybe I should have specialized in something. But, so that's my, my myth that I overcame. And even if I wanted to be a specialist, I don't think I have it in me. I, I I like that, Lisa, because uh, so many times we do, we question decisions that we've made even after we, we move forward. And we've had some great comments coming in from our, our viewers uh, today that, uh, first of all, this feels like a therapy show now, right? What's a myth <laughs> and how did you overcome it? Because we've had some confessions from both Alan and Ed about uh, Novell Networking. Uh, which is really uh, kind of going back in uh, time machine there. So that's uh, that's been interesting. Uh, and, um, you know, Michael posted a couple of, of comments that I would love to get. Um, uh, Braden, Rob, uh, I know we lost Lisa here for a minute, but she'll be back shortly. Um, you know, Michael posted a little bit ago about, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you If you want to go far, go together. Uh, I thought that was a great comment. Uh, and then his second one was, uh, you know, you have to tell people what's in it for me, right? So um, when you think about those two comments, uh, what jumps to mind for either one of you? I will tell you right now that the comment about not being able to articulate it, uh, what's in it for me is probably the number one threat to every IT leader in the industry right now. Um, you know, just very candidly speaking, I, I think most uh, IT folks are engineering minded and oftentimes um, they don't have the, you know, they're not salespeople. They're not going to try to pitch their project as the next, uh, you know, slice bread or whatever. But you've got to be able to uh, bring the people along for the ride and explain why we're doing something. I see too many failed projects where we've went out and we said, we are moving to this platform on this date, have a nice day. <laughs> and it creates this huge, you know, rift in the organization and there's fear and uncertainty and doubt and all mm -hmm. these, these things. But if we come in front of the organization and we say, Hey, uh, we're going to make a migration from this platform to this platform for these reasons. And this is what we hope to achieve for you in doing that. Um, it's, I almost never get pushback on it. We, we get questions, but we don't get the steadfast pushback and in, an entrenched mindset of we're not going to change. They say, oh, I want to change because this is going to be cool. It's going to be good for me. Yeah, I, I've seen similar. Probably one of the, uh, the biggest disaster projects I've ever been involved in was a cloud voice project um, where it was totally driven by the IT folks. They were They were totally... They had all sorts of good reasons they wanted to do this, but they never got any key stakeholders involved in the project early on. And so we got to the point where we had specced everything out, got it all planned. We're starting to roll everything out. They finally brought in the key stakeholders, and one was a um, uh, uh, was the uh, person who handled the front desk. And her first question is, where is my console with the 50 buttons on it? And they're like, well, it's cloud and it's all digital. It's all going to be on your computer screen. No, you're going to take that console from my cold, dead hands. And she basically gave the company an ultimatum. It's me or this. And the company decided we really like her. Um, we're going to put this on the back burner. If we had just had her involved early on where she could have seen the benefits and wasn't just being, you know, here's the change we're forcing on you without any sort of kind of Here's, here's what's what's in it for you, the outcome would have probably been totally different. If I could throw a, a penny in on this one, um, one of the things that we find that causes people to be resistant to change is they feel like all of the work that they've done for their entire career is suddenly devalued or um, no longer important or no longer relevant to the organization. And so taking those steps to kind of like what you were talking about, Rob, to honor the past, honor the traditions, honor the accomplishments of what's come to date, to help assist with the transition to a new way of being and a new way of thinking can be a really powerful way to bring people along who may otherwise be resistant to the change because they're framing it in their heads as everything I've ever done is no good. 
Um, but if you can reframe it for them to say, what's been done was incredibly valuable and powerful, and now we're building upon that, that's a very different framing and a really yeah. powerful way to bring people along a journey. And it is tough for IT people, right? Because we are, like you said, we're engineering minded. We 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 deal with buttons and widgets and stuff. And we some, you know, people people is hard. You know, dealing with people it gets to be hard. And so it is it is tough for us to kind of back up sometimes and remember there are real people involved in these decisions. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the comment that's on the screen right now from Patty. Uh, when a change is made, we impact people's work. When we impact how people do their work without any preparation. We tell them their input doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. uh, I, I I love that because it, it is so true. Uh, one of the things, and I'll I'll talk to Lewis and Clark again if you'll bear with me. One of the things we teach in that program uh, is that concept of current way of being, new way of being. How do you how do you really affect change? And one of the things that you find is you have to you have to have people. Uh, take action in uh, each of four quadrants. So if you think of a, of a matrix, we all know matrix, right? The, the four quadrants, uh, you're an IT professional, you know the Gardner magic quadrant and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So think that. So think in the upper left is uh, insights within yourself. So think self-reflection. You've got to get people thinking about themselves and how they uh, interact with work and in in that and they need to think you can't tell them how to think they have to think about how they think if that makes sense in the upper right quadrant it's actions with accountability so you have to give them things to go do uh, and then hold them accountable for doing that go learn about the cloud go learn about cisco networking go learn about leadership and then come back and tell me about it the, the lower left quadrant is discussion with others, like we're doing right here. You've got to give uh, people uh, the, the platform or the, the, the time to talk with their peers about the change. Um, hey, what do you think about that, Rob? Lisa, can you believe they're doing that? Some of that is, is complaining, right? But they need to get that out. Uh, because you never know, Braden might pop in and say, well, hey, Lisa, have you ever thought about this? Right. So you got to give them that opportunity. And then the lower right is kind of what we've been talking about, their place in the system. Right. We're all part of a larger system within our organization uh, and everyone has to understand their role. Yes. As Michael said, what's in it for them, but also what's their role today and what's their role tomorrow? How's that going to change? And how 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 is that going to morph? So you've got to be focusing on all four of those quadrants to really impact change. Now, one of the other things that we that we talk about uh, in that Lewis and Clark program uh, is uh, when you think about vision uh, and uh, and what it takes to be a visionary leader. And and I think. As, as people that view this podcast and are on this podcast, we want to we want to move our organizations forward. We talk about challenging the dominant narrative. Uh, and so uh, we'll put the words in, uh, we'll put it in terms of myth busting. But what's, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask each of you, what's the dominant narrative or what's the myth uh, in your area uh, that needs to be busted today. So, Braden, I'm going to start with you. And I know you just got a new certification in in cybersecurity. So what's a myth about cybersecurity that is just ripe to blow up and bust today? There's a few to pick from, probably. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think the overarching is probably if you think you're fine, you're not, uh, <laughs> you know, not to, to make people sleepless at night. But um, there's a couple probably foundational technology myths that are there right now. The first is uh, uh, that, you know, if you have multi-factor authentication, uh, you're good by itself. You know, we do multi-factor, no one can ever get into our account. We can't, you know, have any problems. Uh, that's just not true. There are very complex spear phishing attacks that are out there today. There are MFA code attacks that are out there today to trick users into giving up their codes. Everything, every new step we put into the defense in depth is going to find a, a, a circumvision and, and the bad guys are going to just find a new way to, to attack it, right? Yeah. Um, the same is true with like uh, antivirus versus EDR 
Um, you know, there was a big push and I, I, please believe me, you should move, uh, from traditional AV to, uh, EDR. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of people that are getting caught in the sales, uh, pitch of different EDR platforms that, Hey, just, just install our EDR platform and you'll never have a ransomware attack ever again. And, and that's not true either. It's going to go a long way in helping prevent it. Uh, but they're always going to find another way to get around it. Um, and then the last piece, and we're seeing this right now with uh, what we know about the attack on MGM, is that um, user training doesn't matter. And that's not true at all. Uh, your users and your organization are ultimately probably the, the weakest link in the chain, not because they're bad people, not because they're stupid, not because of anything like that. It's because... Uh, they're trying to do their job. And so when they get an urgent text message from someone that purports to be their CEO or someone that is a locked out admin asking for a reset, they're trying to do their job and, and do what's right for the organization. And they're going to go unlock that account. And as like we saw with uh, the MGM attack, all it takes is one person getting looked up on LinkedIn to go to the help desk to use that name to get an admin account reset. And then they're in the environment. Yeah. Did that did they have to bypass MFA to do that? No, they used your person to do that. Did they have to bypass EDR to do that? No, they walked right in the front door because someone um, maybe lacked training or, or lacked that oversight. So those are probably the, the three biggest is it's a layer of defense. You have to do defense in depth. You can't just rely on one product to save the day for everything. Yeah, I, I, I love that, Braden. And it, it reminds me of a conversation uh, that we had on Status Go podcast with uh, uh, author George Finney. He wrote the Zero Trust Project. Uh, and uh, I think he even has t-shirts that that say this. Uh, uh, people are not the weakest link. They're the only link, yeah. right? You've got to focus on the people. Uh, Rob, uh, you talk with a lot of InterVision clients and prospects uh, uh, probably every day. Uh, what are, what's a myth that you hear out there that we haven't talked about yet? You know, we've addressed those five, but what's one that you hear still today? I, probably the biggest one I run into daily is the cloud is inflexible, right? And it's not ever worded that way. It's, it's really worded from the perspective of, well, I, I, I know everybody's moving to, you know, everybody's moving to Office 365 or Azure or, you know, whatever, pick your favorite flavor. But I don't think we can because we have where we have, uh, you know, uh, HIPAA compliancy requirements or e-discovery or, or I, we, you know, we've got to keep data for forever. Or, you know, there's always something thrown out as we're, we're unique. And that's true. However, usually there's other people in the same boat, right? You may have a different combination of unique things, but your 10 unique things probably individually aren't unique. You're just kind of packaging them up a little bit different. So that, that's been a big one we've run into is just kind of working through that. The good news is, and kind of putting a plug in for us for a minute, we're kind of like those farmer's insurance commercials where they say we've seen a thing or two. That's <laughs> kind of us, right? We've, we, you know, over the years, we've we've worked with a lot of customers. We've run into a lot of those unique situations. We can normally kind of tell you what other, you know, not only what what's a, you know, here's a way we might be able to work around it, but you know, yeah, here's how others are actually doing this, right? And I think what a lot of folks realize in that conversation is, oh, you know, a couple things. One, we're not as unique as we think we are, but two, this stuff's a lot more mature than I think we give it credit for, right? We're not you know, we're not in year number one of, of, of cloud, you know, we're, yeah. we're into the second decade of it at this point in time. So yeah. a lot of those, a lot of those situations have been dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. I think everybody kind of thinks they're special. Um, we all like to think they are special, uh, but we're, our, our shops are probably more similar than they are different uh, yeah. in a lot of cases. Uh, Lisa, I know you have focused a lot of your career on growing leaders. And, and, you know, I, I think of you and I got to spend a, a lot of windshield time uh, <laughs> driving from Portland to, uh, to Stevenson, Washington, many times uh, as we were doing the Lewis and Clark program. Um, and our conversations always seem to center around leadership, mm -hmm. uh, whether it was your career experience, my career experience, or 
you know, something that we shared with the group that we just uh, went through the program with. So I, I'd like to ask you, what's a common leadership myth mm-hmm. that needs to be busted today? Yeah, so th- such a great question. There are a lot of them and they tend to be pretty sticky. The one that I would focus on today is that um, there's only one way to be a good leader. Uh, the one one size fits all, everyone should be the same kind of leader. Um, and the reality is that leadership is a social process. And so as leaders, we need to be attentive to and flex with, with the people around us, whether it's the people who report to us, our peers, our leaders. Um, so being really self-aware and being authentic and vulnerable and willing to put yourself out there is much more important than having a specific pedigree or a specific way of leading. Um, I'm in an interesting position right now because of that interim VP of sales. My leadership style is very different than my predecessors. He and I think a lot alike, but the way we express that thought is quite different. And one of the conversations that I've been having in the organization is not that I'm right and he's wrong or he's right and I'm wrong, but our styles serve different needs in the organization. So I think that's um, that's a really important leadership myth that rather than trying to be some other kind of leader, somebody that you maybe want to emulate, be yourself and figure out where your leadership strengths are and leverage those rather than trying to be someone you're not. Because people smell that a mile away and it never goes well. I, I love that because that's probably a lesson that I learned in my own leadership from uh, from my executive coach is you have to own who you are and mm-hmm. and your personality and the mm-hmm. personality that I bring to a role is not going to be the same personality that someone else brings it. Mm-hmm. My experiences are different. Uh, and I love that you threw vulnerable in there. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great leadership trait that doesn't get a lot of press these days. Now, those of you that have listened to the Status Go podcast uh, know that we are all about action. Uh, mm-hmm. And so is digital dialogue. We want, we want folks to be able to take action. It's great to view this podcast or, or sorry, view this LinkedIn Live or listen to the podcast, uh, maybe learn a nugget or two, maybe be entertained a, a little bit. Uh, but what's really important is action. So I'd like each of you to share one action that our listeners should go do tomorrow because they listen to us today. So Lisa, I'm going to put you on the spot first. What's an action that that our listeners and viewers should go do? So what I would say is put yourself in the driver's seat. Don't ever allow yourself to be a victim of your personality. That's a preference. It's not written in stone or of a bias or of a mindset. Instead, practice critical thinking. Really Consider your own beliefs that you're bringing to the table, what information you're bringing in, and use that evaluative process in in an active, intentional way. That will help you be successful. I love that. And and it's got a great visual. Put yourself in the driver's seat. Rob, how about you? I was uh, thinking kind of the same direction as Lisa was, right? Be willing to review some of your own biases and, and maybe look at why you have those, right? Some cases, they might be coming from realistic places, but in some cases they may be coming from fear. So just be just be willing to kind of open your eyes, take a step back, um, look, you know, uh, and just step out there a little bit uh, in, in places you haven't been before. You, you may find when you look back in a few years that that was a good first step. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Braden, your turn. Yeah, I'm probably going to tie it together um, with a little bit of what Lisa and Rob said there. And that is, uh, you know, I think if you are hesitant about um, getting involved with some cloud technology, whether it be a SaaS platform or platform as a service, AWS, whatever, um, I think step one is to do what Rob had said earlier, which is identify a small use case um, that you can trial run. Um, And I think step two is to overcome some of those biases by you know, getting some deeper education or, or learning about um, the things that you're afraid of or you're concerned about, uh, and then try to understand it a little bit better. And when you do that, then you can kind of roll out with that um, proof of concept and, and see where it takes you from there. And if you, you know, I'll call back to the status go uh, episode I did with Jeff and, 
and say, probably find yourself a trusted partner that you can work with too, because, um, back to what Lisa was saying about specialization, like, you know, we can be, you know, jacks of all trade, but there are inevitably going to be pieces of, of technology that we don't have the depth of understanding on that we need a little help. And the best way to do that is to, to leverage a, a trusted partner in this space. And, and and I'm going to throw one out here too. I normally don't do this on the on the podcast, but I want to do it here. Uh, and and that is something that we don't take a lot of time to do as leaders. Uh, and what I would encourage you to do is carve out time tomorrow to reflect. Uh, think about your leadership and think about is there uh, something that that you hold a belief that you hold that it's time to move past or move through uh, and just carve out that time. Set a meeting appointment on your calendar uh, for 30 minutes, uh, 15 minutes if you can't carve out 30 uh, and just think, reflect on your leadership. So Lisa, Rob, Braden, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this digital dialogue today. I really appreciate you carving out time to, to help us uh, with the Mythbusters finale. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To our viewers and our listeners, thank you for joining us today on this crossover episode of Digital Dialogue and the Status Go podcast. Uh, thank you also to our sponsor uh, for this event, uh, Intervision Systems, and the publisher of the Status Go podcast. We could not bring you this content without their support and their leadership. And I, and I am so appreciative of that. Uh, in fact, if you want to, to learn more, of course, you can visit the, the Institute for Digital Transformations website, uh, but visit intervision.com myths. You'll learn more about intervision. You'll learn more about the myths that we busted and, and uh, just check that out and look for a video replay of this uh, session. Uh, on the Institute for Digital Transformations YouTube channel. Uh, I think John said it would be out there tomorrow. Uh, and as I said, we're going to air this uh, as, a, as a podcast episode uh, on Monday, uh, and you'll be able to find that at intervision.com slash status go or wherever you get your podcast. This is Jeff Tun for Lisa Cavanaugh, Braden Pitts, and Rob Spitzer. Thank you very much for tuning in and watching and listening today. We appreciate it. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find Intervision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.